0: Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would open up your word to us. We pray, Father, that by the enablement of your spirit, we may behold not only the past Christ of history, but the living Christ reigning in glory. We pray, Father, that you would apply to our hearts the experiential realities of the truths that we intend to open up Grant us, Father, grace to preach, grace to hear, grace to believe, and grace to live. In Christ's name, Amen. All right, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 2 to 8. As it is written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John, that's John the Baptist, came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy To stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Well, we come now to the prologue of the Gospel of Mark. And as Mark opens up this masterful story about the life of Jesus, this great drama of redemption, he sets the scene in the wilderness. Not in Jerusalem, which was a place where God had promised to make his presence dwell. Not in the schools of the prestigious rabbis, where scholars debated about the most profound biblical truths. And not in the synagogues, where the scribes and Pharisees taught every Sabbath from the seat of Moses. But he begins in the wilderness. And this is not what we would expect. John inaugurates the announcement of the kingdom of God in the wilderness. Jesus is baptized and tempted in the wilderness. Numerous times in the prologue of Mark's gospel, he uses this word wilderness to call attention to this setting. And so the question is, well, why the wilderness? Well, the gospel account is drawing from the book of the prophet Isaiah, having in mind the background of God's great dealings in the book of the Exodus. Isaiah's vision of the redemption and restoration of Israel says that there will be a new beginning, a new creation, and a new Exodus that would transpire from the wilderness. And the wilderness would be transformed by God's personal presence. We see that in Isaiah 41, 18 and 19. Isaiah 44, verses 3 to 4. We see it in the book of Ezekiel, the book of Jeremiah. And Isaiah 43, 19 says, Behold, and this is God talking, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth, shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. God's doing a new thing. And when he says that, he's not just saying he'll do something that he's never done before. But what he's saying is that he will operate by his great and supernatural power in order to perform the work of a new creation. And the road that He's making in the wilderness is not just an ordinary road. It's the highway of holiness. It's the highway of the great King. It's a way that's prepared, a road that's paved, as it were, for God Himself and His majesty and personal presence to come and visit His people. Isaiah forty three twenty one, in the same context, says, that there will be a recreated Israel, a new people generated by the saving and creative power of God. He says, the, this people that I have formed for myself, they shall declare my praise. And that word formed in the Hebrew, Yatzar, is the same word used in Genesis Chapter 2 and verse 7, where it says that the Lord God formed, Yatzar, he formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his life, the, or breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Isaiah is purposefully using that same Hebrew word in order to indicate that the end-time new creation would inaugurate in the wilderness. The final end-time exodus of the people of God would begin in the wilderness. If you recall, Moses was sent from the wilderness to announce the redemption of God's people out of their slavery in Egypt. So John the Baptist would come from the wilderness as well to announce the final exodus, redemption, jubilee of the people of God. It says John was the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. This was not a mere human voice that articulates reverberating sounds, but a prophetic message originating from outside the sphere of human domain tracing its origin to the divine. John was a prophet who declared the word of God. For 400 years, there had been a silence and no prophetic voice. And now after four centuries, God raises up John to come with a voice like thunder announcing that the day of God's visitation had come. And so consider in the first place his prophetic background. This is indicated in verses 2 to 3 of our text. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. It was the custom of kings in antiquity to send their servants before them. When they intended to visit a city or a town or a village or a place, the king would never just show up. There would always be ambassadors sent before his face. And as the king would be carried or riding in his chariot, the servants would make sure that the holes in the roads were filled up, that the obstacles were removed, that the king could come through in his royal procession and splendor and glory without any hindrance and be recognized and hailed and praised by the people. John is singularly chosen as the personal ambassador of the king of glory. Now you may notice in reading this text that there is a discrepancy. And that discrepancy arises from the Greek manuscripts. And you may see it reflected if you're reading the ESV or the NIV or the NASB, which has a different reading from the New King James Version. Because instead of saying it is written in the prophets, those versions say it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Now which of those two readings reflects Mark's original has little practical consequence for the meaning of the verse in the text. And even though Mark quotes from Malachi and Isaiah from both books, It was not uncommon for the Jews of his day to introduce composite quotations taken from various sources under the name of the most prominent prophet that's quoted. And in this case, Isaiah is the most prominent. Nonetheless, I prefer the New King James reading because it reflects the testimony of the vast majority of surviving Greek manuscripts. Well, Mark's point is to show John the Baptist's prophetic background. Isaiah prophesied of John's coming 700 years before he was born. Malachi 400 years prior. He's one of the few individuals who has ever lived whose life was so historically significant that it was expressly foretold in the prophet's of the scriptures. John had a uniquely privileged role in God's plan of redemption. He stands on the precipice of the fulfillment of all that the prophets foretold and anticipated. He was ordained to be the personal forerunner of the Messiah, the royal ambassador commissioned by heaven. Our Lord Jesus Christ would later say, among those born of women, there is never arisen any greater than John the Baptist. and Mark chapter 1 and verse 2, the quotation is from Malachi 3.1. But Mark abbreviates the text of Malachi, and he also introduces some wording from a text in Exodus. So let's turn to Malachi 3.1 to see what it's saying. Matthew's the first book of the New Testament. Malachi's the last book of the Old Testament. So if you go to Matthew and just turn back a book, you'll you'll get there. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And so there are two individuals spoken of in this passage. The first is God's messenger, that's John the Baptist. The second is the Lord who is identified as the messenger of the covenant, who suddenly comes to his temple to take up his throne and reign in the midst of Israel. The Ark of the Covenant was spoken of as the footstool of God's throne. The temple structure itself is representative of the reign of God as king in the midst of his people. And so the messenger comes to prepare the way for the Lord himself who shows up in order to assume his throne in the midst of the people of God. And that's what Jesus did. When he died and rose again and ascended into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God to reign until all enemies are put under his feet. He assumed his throne in the heavenly temple because he himself is the anti-typical eschatological temple. He is the truth that the physical establishment and institution of the temple as a type pointed to. He's the eternal, spiritual, redemptive truth of the temple. And so he came to die and to rise and to assume his reign over the creative order, his reign of grace during the present interval. He's coming again to establish his reign of power and to consummate that reign. But John came announcing his coming according to the Malachi text. But notice the identity of the one for whom John the Baptist prepares the way. Specifically, Malachi says he prepares the way for the Lord. And when he calls him the messenger of the covenant, Malachi is identifying him with the angel of Yahweh. You remember in the Exodus, this angel that would appear who speaks the very words of God and who is worshipped as God. This is the angel from the burning bush who told Moses, take off your sandals from your feet because you're standing on holy ground. You dare not approach me except with a humble disposition of worship that properly extols the greatness of my name. Because this was no ordinary angel, this angel was God." That's the one for whom John the Baptist prepares the way. Hence, the angel of the covenant of the Exodus is none other than the pre-incarnate Logos of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, prior to the days of his flesh. And so when Mark quotes Malachi 3.1 and applies it to John the Baptist and Jesus, he is situating these two individuals in relationship to one another according to their scriptural identity. And that's the point that he's seeking to make. He's identifying John as a man, a mere man, and a great prophet, but a mere man. John is the forerunner of God, the Messiah. And he's identifying Jesus as not only the Messiah, the son of David, after the line of David, but he's identifying Jesus as Yahweh God himself. And so this is a clear declaration of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the first three verses of Mark's gospel contain three declarations of the, de- the deity of Christ. In verse one, Christ is the Son of God, coequal and co-eternal with the Father. In verse two, Christ is the Malach Haberit in the Hebrew, the messenger of the covenant, the specific name applied to God himself manifesting as the angel of the Exodus. He's also identified as Lord in the Malachi text, Adon, from which we get Adonai. This is the Lord of glory, God himself. And then in verse 3, Mark quotes Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. And there he says he is the Lord. The the Isaiah text uses what we call the tetragrammaton, the divine covenant name of God, Yahweh. And so Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the angel of Yahweh. Jesus is the Lord Adonai. And Jesus is Yahweh God. He is the one true God, the second person of the Trinity. And thus, right out of the gate in Mark's gospel, we have three testimonies that Jesus is the divine Messiah because only a divine Messiah could possibly, possibly rescue us from our sins. It was necessary for him to be God. Isaiah 43, 11 says, "'I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior.'" Only God saves. Salvation is of the Lord. If the Lord Jesus Christ is not fully divine, he would not be able to accomplish our salvation. And that's what Mark is getting at. It was fitting for Mark to quote the prophet Malachi because Malachi speaks of the coming of Elijah the prophet before the day of God's visitation. Malachi chapter four and verse five says, "Behold. I send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. You know, there's this phrase that that reoccurs again and again in the prophets. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. What's the day of the Lord? It's the day of God's sovereign, miraculous, personal, supernatural intervention into the ordinary course of history in order to accomplish salvation and, and judgment. And so the day of the Lord was inaugurated with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This prophecy was fulfilled about Elijah the prophet and the coming of John the Baptist. And in Matthew eleven fourteen, Jesus, speaking of John the Baptist, says, If you are willing to receive it, he is the Elijah to come. That's Mark's point in chapter 1, verse 6, where he calls attention to the peculiar garb and undomesticated habits of John the Baptist. It says, Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey, food that was provided amply in the wilderness itself. Locusts was the only insect that was permitted to be eaten according to the Levitical code. John himself was a priestly stock. He was the son of a priest of the tribe of Levi. Apparently, John lived in some kind of perpetual Nazarite vow, the highest form of consecration that an Israelite could practice before God according to the law, and he practiced this functional Nazarite vow throughout his entire life. Well, if you remember in 2 Kings chapter 1, when uh, Ahaziah, the king of Syria, he fell through the lattice of his upper room and he was sorely injured. And so he sent messengers to, to, to inquire, not of God, but to the false god of Ekron, Baalzebub. But then the Lord sent Elijah the prophet to overtake the, the messengers of the king while they were on their way. And Elijah rebuked them and pronounced the judgment of God on the king of Syria. And so when the messengers returned to the king, they never actually got to inquire of Beelzebub. They were stopped in their tracks by the rebuke of the prophet. And then they went back and told the king what the prophet had said to them. And so the king wondered, who was this prophet who spoke these unpleasant words to you? 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 7 to 8, we read, Then he, that's the king of Syria, said to them, What kind of man was it that came up to meet you and told you these words? And so they answered him, A hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. And he said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. Immediately he knew the identity of this man because of his unique and peculiar garb. John dressed similarly to Elijah. But there is a lot more in common with Elijah and John than just clothing. Both were true prophets. Both were desert ascetics with rigorous lifestyles of fasting and self-denial and prayer. Both were so ablaze with zeal for God's holiness that they had to live in practical exile from the population centers of the sinful masses. Society could not contain these men. Both were so penetrating and pure in their preaching that it was impossible for them to conform to the religious status quo, Both are described in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 37 to 38, where it says they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins. They wandered, or being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. Both were prophets of fire, proclaiming a god who is a consuming fire, preaching a message that was characterized by an emphasis on divine judgment. Both stood pretty much solo in declaring the judgment of God upon wayward authorities in Israel. And both became the number one most wanted on the hit lists of the wayward kings. These similarities were God's doing and only God's doing. No one could possibly imitate Elijah so effectively. Sure, many false prophets tried to imitate him. Zechariah 13.4 mentions a false prophets who wore a robe of coarse hair to deceive. They were trying to imitate Elijah. But they no more approximated Elijah's stature and holiness than a three-year-old with finger paint can paint like Michelangelo. If anyone has any doubt that Jesus is the true Messiah, I mean, there are clear and manifest proofs at every single interval in the life of Christ and in every single detail about him. But if that weren't enough, all you have to do is look to his forerunner, John the Baptist, because he's the only man in history that fits the bill as the Elijah to come. He's the only one who fulfills Malachi 3.1 and 4.5. And everything about John speaks to his identity as a true prophet. And what was his message as a prophet from God? I am not the Messiah. I am not divine. I'm not even worthy to be his servant. He's coming after me. And so he came to prepare the way for him. John was of such an impressionable character His preaching was so penetrating and powerful. His prophetic insight was so sagacious into human nature and into the secrets of the hearts of men that many people in his own day thought that he was indeed the Messiah. Josephus says as much, that Jewish historian from the first century. Josephus actually wrote more about John the Baptist than he did about Jesus. John's impact on Israel was not small. It says in in our text that all Judea and Jerusalem went out to him to be baptized by the Jordan. Now that's a hyperbolic statement, but what it's saying is that great multitudes flocked to hear John. And he did no miracle. It's not like he was performing signs and wonders. It's not like, like Elijah, he raised people from the dead. Or like Jesus. John did no miracle, but everything he said about the Lord Jesus Christ was true, the Scripture says. He prophesied with infallible prophetic insight, and it was a phenomenon. But this raises a question for us. As John came to prepare the way, how did he prepare the way? What must people do to receive the Messiah? What did they have to do in John's day, and what do we have to do in our day? And so that leads us to our second point, his peculiar baptism. Verses 4 and 5 of Mark 1. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. John came in the spirit and power of Elijah, pronouncing the judgment of God upon the sinfulness of man. He confronted sin with prophetic boldness. He commanded repentance with divine authority. And the God who sent him commissioned him to command a provisionary ordinance that symbolized the only rightful response to his message. John came baptizing in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now, this is peculiar. It was not customary for the Jews to baptize like this, much less for them to baptize multitudes of other Jews, much less Jews from Judea and Jerusalem who lived in proximity to the temple. If they wanted to get right with God, why wouldn't they go to the temple instead of going outside Jerusalem, way into the wilderness? John's setting in the wilderness, as well as his baptism, was a blatant offense to the institutional religion of his day. It was a scathing indictment against the religious apostasy of the Jewish establishment. Although there was a remnant of Jews who were true believers, generally speaking, the religion of this second temple era had fallen into a corrupt combination of legalism and antinomianism. Jesus would later say in Luke eleven fifty-two, Woe to you lawyers! Those were the experts in the law. They're not lawyers like the ones who stand in our courts today. These were the experts and scholars of the law of Moses. He says, For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves. That is, they did not enter the kingdom of God through salvation. And those who were entering, you hindered. You hindered by distorting the truth of God and proclaiming a false gospel. And you know, the same pattern has often repeated itself throughout the course of church history. The same kind of dead religion prevails among most professing Christian circles today. In the first place, established Judaism had fallen into antinomianism. Most thought they were right with God on the basis of two things. First was their Hebraic lineage as descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But being a physical descendant of Abraham didn't guarantee salvation. And so we read in Matthew 3, verses 7 to 10, that when many of the Pharisees and Sadducees came out to John's baptism, he said to them, and notice his prophetic boldness, you brood of vipers, who warned you? to flee the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. He says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That he says in verse 11, I baptize you with water unto repentance. And so, John's baptism demolished spiritual pride by calling for genuine repentance. He was teaching that nobody's born a true believer, there must be genuine conversion. Peter said in Acts 3:19, "Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord." The Puritan Richard Baxter said, "You must be made new men or you will be dead men." You may have heard the saying that God has many children but no grandchildren just because your parents are believers doesn't mean that you're automatically a child of God. You must be converted by the power of the new birth. The Jews also confided in their profession of the Shema from Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Every day they would pray that prayer. Every day, they would confess it out loud, oftentimes numerous times a day, at least three times during the hours of prayer. They also made these little phylacteries, of which Moses is absolutely silent, of which the whole word of God is absolutely silent, except in describing the traditions of the Pharisees. Phylacteries were little boxes, often made out of leather, and you would open them up And inside, the Jews, they would write the Shema, and they would fold up this little paper like a scroll, and they would put it inside their phylactery, and they would close it, and then they would wear it. It had like a strap, like a belt, and they would wear it around their foreheads or around their left forearm in order to show everybody how pious they were. But they confuse the profession of faith with the possession of faith. They profess to believe in God, but they were like what Paul describes in Titus 1.16, that although they profess to know God, in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Their religion was of the head, but not of the heart. Like George Whitfield said, he said multitudes of professing believers miss heaven by just 18 inches, the distance between their head and their heart. So by calling the people of Judea to repent and be baptized, John the Baptist was saying in effect that their profession of faith in God was vain. It was an empty profession that did not profit the soul. Faith that does not evince the fruit of repentance is a dead faith, and it does not avail to eternal life. Jewish religion had also become terribly legalistic, not only antinomian, but legalistic. Mark talks about this in chapter 7, verses 3 to 4 of his gospel account. It says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. But these were the traditions of men that had no warrant from the word of God. The Jews prided themselves in such externalisms, but they ignored the greater importance of the internal condition of the heart. And so the Lord said to them in Matthew 23:27, You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Your external piety and your externalistic religiosity does not avail to purify the heart. They measured godliness in terms of what could be performed by the efforts of man and by man's will and man's own willpower and exertion apart from the intervention of supernatural grace. They ignored the necessity of the internal transforming work of the Spirit's power. And even worse, they thought that their putrid works and superficial religion earned them some kind of merit and favor before God. Their bad works they considered to be good works. And so they added sin on top of sin, adding legalism And encrusting over the religion with a deadness on top of the rank antinomianism, and like Paul said in Romans chapter three or chapter ten verse three, he said they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. And so that John the Baptist appears on the scene, cutting through their dead religion. And by baptizing in the wilderness, he was saying that their religion was so forsaken of God that in order to get right with God, one had to leave the religious establishment and face persecution from it. He was communicating the message of Isaiah 52 verse 11, which says, Depart, depart. Go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Be clean, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. The context in Isaiah there is that of the new final redemptive exodus. John was basically saying that Jerusalem had become as corrupt as Egypt. And that the new exodus inaugurated by the coming Messiah would free the people from the idolatrous false religion as they were led out into the wilderness to follow God. Now there was no overt idolatry among the Jews during the second temple era. They learned that lesson quite well from the Babylonian exile and the years of captivity. And so when they came back to Jerusalem and Judea, there was no statues and overt images of idols among them. And yet, when the Lord Jesus Christ told the Pharisees, in vain this people worships me, teaching the traditions of men. He's quoting from Isaiah the prophet. And in the context of Isaiah the prophet, God is denouncing the idolatry of the people. And so Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, your religion is idolatrous. You are worshiping God in vain. And John is announcing, in effect, the same thing by baptizing in the wilderness. He's saying you have to depart from false religion. You have to depart from idolatry. You have to depart from your sins and forsake them and renounce them. You have to come out from the midst of them and be clean, says the Lord. You who bear the vessels of the Lord. That's speaking of the priests. And God is conceptualizing all his people here as a royal priesthood redeemed by Christ for his glory. But there's more to it than that. John's baptism was unique. It was different from Christian baptism but it was also the precursor to it. Some scholars insist that the word that occurs in our text here, baptisma, in the Greek, and the singular, translated baptism, that it's a uniquely Christian word. They say it only appears in writings of the New Testament and then in the writings of Christians after the New Testament. F.T. France says its first occurrence in Greek literature is the New Testament itself. And so John's baptism was a new thing. It was a new ordinance ordained to inaugurate the coming of the new king. It had only one parallel in his day. It was a new thing, but it had a parallel, and only one parallel. Although the Jews practiced various ceremonial washings, the closest parallel to the baptizing of John the Baptist was the baptism of proselytes in water. Proselytes were Gentiles or Hellenistic Jews that did not come up as, with faith in the God of Israel. They desired to be converted to God. And so they would be immersed in water as a testimony that they had renounced their old pagan religion and that they were being cleansed in order to worship God truly and purely. Proselyte baptism was a recognition of their past sinfulness and a testimony to their present repentance. But the thing is, nobody practiced proselyte baptism on Jews. Nobody. And nobody dared do it because in doing so, one was meddling with the temple establishment. And so John's baptism was calling people to recognize their radical sinfulness. In effect, it was saying to the people, if you would truly be converted to God, you must confess yourself to be no better than a Gentile dog. In spite of your profession of faith, irrespective of all your religious deeds, you are in the same condition before God as a pagan and idolater. There is no merit in you. There is nothing good in you. You must renounce yourself, renounce your works, and renounce your dead religion. You must be cleansed not only of your sins, but also of your inherent sinfulness, just like a Gentile would. And you must take on a new identity. And you must endeavor after a radically different pattern of life. That's what his baptism was announcing. And that's why the end of verse 5 says, They all went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. To be baptized by John was to make this radical confession about one's sinfulness. It was to announce that the only way you could possibly get right with God is if he freely forgives your sin for his pure mercy's sake. And of course, the self-righteous were too proud to repent. They were too proud of their vast learning. They were too proud of their feigned piety. They were too proud of their religious attainments. And so John's message comes as a two-edged sword. He preaches salvation to the penitent and judgment to the impenitent. So note in the third place his preparatory message. His preparatory message. All four gospel accounts stress that John came with a preparatory message to prepare people's hearts to receive Jesus. Mark doesn't talk about John's emphasis on the coming judgment, except by way of inference with the baptism of the Holy Spirit and its implications for the ungodly. But Matthew and Mark do lay emphasis on on John's preaching of judgment. In Matthew 3.12, John says about the coming one. Here he's making a sharp distinction between true and false believers. And he says, his winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Wheat and chaff, of course, would be contained together when the plant was harvested And to separate them, men in the ancient world would gather the wheat on top of a hill or on a threshing floor, and they would take fans or forks. And with the fork, for instance, they would thrust the fork into the wheat, and they would throw it up into the air, and they would keep hurling it up into the air because the chaff was lighter than the wheat, and so the wind would catch the chaff and it would blow it downwind in order to accumulate in a pile. And then after the sifting process was done, the, the wheat would be gathered into a barn or a storehouse, and the chaff would be gathered together in heaps and burned. This is what John says Messiah will do with all mankind. He will sift out the wheat from the chaff. He comes preaching a discriminating gospel, distinguishing between true and false believers in God. He will gather his elect, and he will separate the chaff, and he will burn the chaff with unquenchable everlasting fire. The eschatological day of the Lord had inaugurated, in other words. God's presence was to be manifested and applied in judgment and salvation, just as the prophets had foretold. God's presence would be manifest among his people. Hence, it was urgent to get right with God and to be prepared for the imminent judgment that Messiah would usher in. John's preaching, therefore, shows what must be an indispensable element of all true gospel preaching, distinguishing between true and false grace, between true and false believers, between true and false religious experience. Charles Bridges said that preaching must, quote, trace the line of demarcation between the church and the world, end quote. He points to the biblical testimony that distinguishes between two classes of people by many different descriptors. But I quote, he says, They're described by their true state before God as righteous and wicked, Proverbs 14, 32. They're described by their knowledge or ignorance of the gospel as spiritual or natural men, 1 Corinthians 2, 14 to 15. They're described by their special regard to Christ as believers or unbelievers, Mark 16, 16. They're described by their interest in the Spirit of God being either in the Spirit or not having the Spirit of Christ, Romans 8, 9. They're described by their habits of life, walking after the minding of the things of the Spirit or the things of the flesh, Romans 8, 1 and 5. They're described by their respective rules of conduct, the word of God, or the course of this world, Psalm 119, 105. They're described by the masters whom they respectively obey, whether the servants of God or the servants of Satan, Romans 6.16. They're described by the road in which they travel, the narrow or the broad road, Matthew 7, 13 to 14. And they're described by the ends to which the roads they are traveling carry them, whether to life or death, to heaven or to hell, Matthew 25, 46. So we should each ask ourselves, that's the end of the quote, we should each ask ourselves, which one of these two classes of people do I find myself in? We should try ourselves by the marks of scripture to see if we are indeed among the wheat, or whether our religious profession is nothing but empty chaff. The Baptist message to us, dear brethren and friends, is to make our calling and election sure, to make sure we're truly converted and born of God. John the Baptist preached a full message without partiality, he preached the good news in the light of the bad news, salvation as well as judgment, God's goodness as well as his severity. He wielded the sword of the Spirit without shaving off its rough edges. His one aim was to glorify and prepare the way of the Lord rather than to pander to the pleasures of his hearers. And to be clear, his aim was the conversion of souls but his message wasn't tailored to win the approval of man at the expense of the approval of God. So his performance in the great drama of Mark's gospel was for the audience of one. He could say with the prophet Elijah, the Lord God before whom I stand. He stood before the Lord God. His eye was on the glory of God. His view was to the judgment seat of God. And he did not respect the look of men's faces. Much of modern evangelism has sadly forgotten these truths. Its primary aim, rather than the glorification of God, is to win converts to Christianity. But the truth of God is often sacrificed on the altar of achieving the winning of converts. The problem is, when we fail to proclaim the whole counsel of God, both of salvation and of judgment, then the message becomes distorted and diluted, and it loses its potency to do true, eternal, lasting good to souls. A.W. Pink wrote, and I quote, once a man makes the conversion of sinners his prime design and all consuming end, he is exceedingly apt to adapt a wrong course. Instead of striving to preach the truth in its purity, he will tone it down so as to make it more palatable to the unregenerate. Impelled by a single force, moving in one fixed direction, his object is to make conversion easy and therefore. Favorite passages, like John 3.16, are dwelt upon incessantly, while other passages are ignored or pared away. It inevitably reacts, he says, upon his own theology, and various verses of the word are shunned, if not repudiated, End quote. So John the Baptist shows that the glory of Christ must be the primary aim of all our evangelism. And if this is our focus, then we won't be cherry-picking truths from the Word of God. We will teach all things whatsoever Christ commanded to all people. We will declare the truth in its unadulterated fullness rather than being ashamed of those truths that make people pleasers to blush. And when the Lord works true conversion in the heart of a person, he gives them a faith-enabled regard, not just for parts of the Word of God, but for the whole Word of God. Not that every part becomes equally sweet to the soul, but every part, no matter how bitter to the palate of the flesh, is esteemed and loved for the sweet, glorious effects it produces in our souls." The healthy believer will be like the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, chapter 10. It says, When he ate the scroll, though it was bitter to his stomach, it was sweet as honey to his mouth. Even when we read of the judgments of God in Scripture, even though they're bitter to our stomach, they're still sweet to our mouths as a word of God. They're precious. A whole Bible, said J.C. Ryle, makes a whole Christian. That is, the whole Word of God makes a healthy, happy believer. So John the Baptist's message aimed to make true and healthy converts for the glory of God, for the praise of the Messiah, for lasting, eternal, spiritual fruit that will withstand the fire of the judgment of the great day of which he prophesied. And that same message is just as needful today as it was in John's day. Finally, look at what Mark says John specifically preached. It wasn't all judgment, because John was a preacher of Christ. Verses 7 and 8, And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, using a form of a Greek word there that in the Septuagint is applied to God, is the Mighty One of Israel, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And that day it was the task of a slave, and only of a slave, really, in terms of the prerogative to whom the thing pertained, to unstrap a person's sandals, and to wash their feet. That was too menial and too lowly of a task for a rabbi to expect a disciple to perform. There's actually extant literature surviving from that era where rabbis debate what deed is too low for a disciple to perform for his rabbi, and they said the only thing that's too low is for the disciple to unstrap the sandals and wash his feet. And if a rabbi asks that of his disciple, the disciple is justified in saying no. And so what's John saying here? He's saying, I'm not even worthy to be his disciple. Indeed, I'm not even worthy to be his slave. A declaration of the matchless majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the infinite dignity of his person, of his unexcelled, unsurpassed glory. Later, Peter would take that further and he would say, I'm not even for the Lord to unstrap my sandals, as it were, and to wash my feet. This isn't because Peter and John the Baptist had low self-esteem. Rather, They understood who Jesus is and they esteemed the greatness of his person to such a degree that the brightness of his glory caused their own relatively much lesser glory as image bearers of God to fade away in comparison. So there's a fourth declaration of the deity of Christ in the Gospel of Mark calling Jesus the mighty one, the one who's mightier than me. That even though I, John the Baptist, am the greatest of the order of the prophets, I'm not even worthy to wash his feet. No prophet would say that about a mere man. But he says it about Christ. Fourth declaration of deity. And the fifth declaration of the deity of Christ is found in the last phrase of verse 8. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The background to this is in the prophets who stress... The prophetic hope that in the last days, God would pour out his spirit on his people. You can go back into the prophets and look at all the texts that promise that. And every single one that indicates the agent who is pouring out his spirit, His spirit in every case that agent is God. Like Isaiah 32, 15. Until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is counted as a forest. And so, from the prophet's perspective, when the kingdom of God comes, it's because God himself visits his people. The Father, who sends the Son, the Messiah, baptizes with the Holy Spirit. This is the fullness of the triune God displaying His glory for the admiration and salvation and judgment of mankind. God is the one who visits His people. God is the one who pours out His Spirit on the thirsty ground. God floods His people with the effusion of the Spirit to make them to flourish with spiritual life and fruitfulness. And hear that God has come to us in Jesus Christ. So in the first eight verses of Mark's gospel, we have five clear declarations of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. You think there might be a point that he doesn't want us to miss? I close with a quote from J.C. Ryle. Let us ask ourselves, as we leave the passage, he says, How much we, by practical experience of the truths, do we know of what John preached? What do we think of Christ? Have we felt our need for him? Have we fled to him for peace? Is he king over our hearts? And is he all things to our souls? What think we of the Holy Ghost? Has he wrought any work in our hearts? Has he renewed and changed them? Has he made us partakers of the divine nature? He says life or death depend on our answer to these questions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you show us so clearly the deity and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We do pray, Father, that you would grant us life in his name the fullness of life, abundant life, that you would cause us to know a greater measure of the fullness of the outpoured spirit. Father, you said that I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Choose life that you might live. We pray that you would move by your mighty power to convert the hearts of the unregenerate to you. Father, please save any unregenerate person in this place. Please convert the hearts of our children to you, of our lost family members to you, of our friends to you, Lord. And Please, Father, allow us to catch greater and greater glimpses of the majesty of Christ this week. In his name we do pray. Amen.